National Geographic Documentary Films presents The Mission, the gripping story of John Chow, the American missionary killed attempting first contact with the indigenous peoples of North Sentinel Island, hailed by Vanity Fair as one of the best documentaries of the year. A nuanced discussion of religion, pop culture, and colonialism, says IndieWire. The Mission, streaming December 8th on Disney Plus and Hulu. Hey, this is John Ridley, along with uh, my partner, Matt Carey, and this is Doc Talk. Every week, we talk about some of the most... I'm sorry, I stepped on your hello. No, hello. (laughs) A hearty hello to you. (laughs) And actually, I'm I'm glad you interrupted, because I just feel like this is... What episode is this, by the way, that we're doing, Matt? 12? 12. I feel like I needed a new introduction, so you broke it off a little bit. But as always, it's great (laughs) to be here with you, Matt, talking about documentaries. Really interesting show today. But I want to take just a slight detour because I do work in and around Hollywood. We're getting to that time of the year. I got to give a quick shout out. I just saw Ferrari, Michael Mann's new film. Really enjoyed it. Really enjoyed it. I've always liked Michael Mann, um, going back to the Jericho Mile, a film he did in the 80s. This is like Michael Mann returning to kind of a slimmed-down narrative. Um, Adam Driver as Enzo Ferrari is amazing. But Penelope Cruz as Enzo Ferrari's wife, she is phenomenal. Phenomenal. This is my early prediction. She will be in the awards conversation. But a really good film. Highly recommend it. Enough about well, how narratives. How can you go wrong? Well, I was going to say, though, how can you go wrong with a film about Ferrari and you've got an actor named Driver? I mean, <laughs> meant to be. I'd, I'd never quite thought of it that way. I think maybe you should be a film executive and you can just put the right <laughs> people together with the right films. Although I, I'd, I'd be out of work. Ridley doesn't rhyme with anything. Uh, you know, we are getting to the end of the year, Matt, and it, it's an exciting time of year. I mean, honestly, for people in the industry, if you're a fan, if you're a creator, if you're an executive, it's an exciting time to see um, your projects hopefully being recognized and, and rewarded by your peers. It's also, as you know, probably better than anyone, it's a tough time because um, there is a complex in the sense that um, people don't just generally hand you awards. It really is a campaign. And unfortunately, despite how terrific films can be, projects can be, um, if you're not getting that recognition, if, if you're not metaphorically or, or, or figuratively you know, getting a billboard on Sunset, Sometimes things do slip through the cracks. Is that, would you say that's a fair assessment? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there there are so many films, there's going to be well over 100 that qualify for Oscar consideration. A number of them never got distribution, yeah. even though they were certainly very worthy of it. And that's where today's episode comes in. Yeah, so today we are actually talking to um, three uh, filmmakers three documentary uh, filmmakers who've done something I think really, really interesting. Rather than kind of go it alone, and there is that sense of, even though we respect each other and enjoy each other's work, that, you know, come the end of the year, we're, we're fighting. We're trying to get that prize. These are three individuals, uh, along with the rest of their creative teams, who've come together and are doing what they're calling a DIY, do-it-yourself, FYC, for your consideration campaign, pooling their resources and trying to bring attention to all their films. So uh, on this episode, we're talking to Diane Becker, who is a producer on King Cole. We're talking to Joe Peeler, the director, the co-director of Bad Press, and Keith Wilson, who is a producer of Junum. Really interesting perspectives on bringing it together like the Super Friends back in the day and working for the justice of 
documentary films. Matt and I, you know, we talk about two sides of the business or all sides of the business. One is the creative and the documentaries and the the impact they have. And then the, the state of the industry. And one of the things that I think has been a real challenge, both in my personal experience around docs and just in talking to documentary filmmakers that I'm really inspired by, so many of them are self-starters. So many of them are doing it because they love the story and they're pushing the artistry. And at the same time, even while that expands the audience in some ways, it feels like it challenges in ways that maybe the industry is not quite ready for because where's the money? Where are the big numbers that are coming in? So, Matt, we're joined by... um, three individuals who are representing three of four films, I believe, that are taking a really unique approach to engaging with the industry, engaging with audiences, and really, well, I guess the best way to call it is how they're calling it, a a DIY FYC campaign. And I'm going to let them talk about it. But we are joined by Diane Becker, who is a producer of the film King Cole, Uh, Joe Peeler, who is a director or co-director of the film Bad Press, and Keith Wilson, who's a producer of the film June Nam. We want to welcome all three of you to the show, Doc Talk. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. So let me start with Diane and just talk about the DIY FYC. And I I know that a, a, a lot of our audience is probably people who are around the industry and familiar with the industry, but there are a lot of people out there who may not understand what FYC is and why, if a film, if a narrative or a performance is great, everybody in the industry should just be aware of that. That's not really how it works. Sometimes to get that recognition, you got to go and, and carve it out and pull it out of the land. Just talk about FYC a little bit and, and how you all came together to do this DIY FYC initiative. Some of this started internally on the King Cole team with Elaine McMillian Sheldon, who's the director of that film, and producer Shane Boris, who he and I were also part of the team that produced Navalny last year. Um, You know, Shane also had Fire of Love. And so last year we had a very different sort of award season where we were supported by big companies and we ran around showing these films and putting them in front of people and asking people to watch them. And then this year with King Cole, we found ourselves sort of without a theatrical distribution offer from like a traditional distributor, right? So we've got, you know, something happening with the film next year. But for in terms of theatrical, we wound up basically hiring a theatrical marketing producer, uh, Mia Bruno, who came in and basically put a whole plan together for us. We opened the film in New York and LA and then proceeded to show the film in a about 80 theaters across the country. But like nobody's really paying any attention to us and and no one's really talking about this. And without a big company or an official company, films that are independently putting themselves out there are not really in the mix for the conversation. And we also don't have the resources of the funds. And one thing that Shane and I discovered last year on the circuit was the camaraderie that you can have, right? Like in many ways, like it's like, obviously this can feel competitive at times and, you know, you care about your film, but the truth is is the documentary community is small. The filmmakers care about each other. We care about our films. And we started talking like, why can't we support each other? Like, why can't we come together? And especially films that might not have a lot of money. Maybe there's a way we could all sort of try to help and support each other and kind of go, hey guys, there were these 
films. And, you know, all four of these films um, that are in this little collective premiered at Sundance in January, one of the best festivals in the world to launch your film, right? And yet we're all languishing out there trying to like get any attention at all. And so we thought, well, maybe we should put our heads together and figure out a way to work together. And I will pass the baton off to Joe and Keith to sort of further that conversation. For us, I think it comes down to like, we just love all of these films. And we were at a point where we premiere at Sundance and then we're told uh, unprecedented market failure, basically. Market doesn't show up, historic Sundance, very few, if any, documentary sales are made. And it feels a little bit like a Wile E. Coyote situation. You kind of like do the impossible. You push this film out with no money. You get all the way to the top of the mountain and then you kind of get to this like pinnacle of Sundance and then you look down and everybody says, well, no market, sorry. And I think at that point we thought, well, let's just throw the rule book out. Let's start making our own rules here. And at the base of that, I think, is why would we compete? I just don't see like any reason to compete against the other films that are in this same situation because like we've become friends on the festival run. We love each other's films. We think they're high quality. We think they should be in the conversation. And so it was a great moment when Diane kind of came to us and said, hey, why don't we join forces for this? And it kind of coalesced a feeling that we had the entire year, really. Joe, I want to ask you real quick, and I know it's hard to be objective about your own work, but um, you were involved in the film Bad Press, which is about issues of freedom of speech, of press. It's set in the Native American, the indigenous community. Were you surprised at all? And, and, and this is where I'm asking you to be objective about something maybe you can't. These are all films that are, are good, that are unique, that are personal. But when we're talking about the freedom of press in an environment where we see this deterioration of the freedom of press, and yet this is set in a community that I wouldn't necessarily would think would have these issues or specific or mirror what's going on with us. Were you surprised at all that there was apparently very little, if not at least people telling you, no market for a film that seems incredibly marketable at this time? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when we were making it, we thought it was a microcosm for the United States kind of issues democratically writ large. And then when we had our European premiere in Poland, and during our Q&A, a person stood up and said, you thought you were making a movie about Oklahoma, but you were actually making a movie about Poland. Mm -hmm. And it kind of made us realize like, oh, the issues that we're tackling here are not local, they're global. And like you said, seemingly a movie like that, that does that in kind of an exciting and funny way in a microcosm of the Muscogee Nation in Oklahoma, you would think like if I read that on a, and we won an award at Sundance, yeah. and you, th- you would think if you read that about a film any other year, you would say, oh, that'll be on Netflix, that'll be on HBO, that'll be on whatever outlet, and, and maybe it would have award legs. And then kind of throughout the year, it's been crazy to see film after film that feels like that, right? And the other films in the cohort included. I I just feel like there needs to be room for, uh, first, the market needs to shift, and that's an issue to solve. But then also in the awards campaign, there needs to be kind of some kind of reform to allow for those films that fell through the cracks to have some attention on them. I'd love to come back to that about reforms and, and your opinions on that, but I want to jump to Keith real quick and obviously let Matt get in here. But Keith, your film, the film you're involved with, Junam, 
is it's a multi-generational tale of Iranian women, uh, individuals who happen to be from Iran who are women. Again, we see what's going on in Iran right now. We see the protests that are sparked because of the way that women are being treated. I would think that there has got to be you know, some kind of an audience for people who'd be like, all right, well, what is that like? What is that experience? This is a film about trauma. This is a film about love. This is a film about generations, you know, by an individual who is an artist who is creating this, uh, basically a, a love letter to her grandmother, to her nation, to her lost family. Were you surprised by, uh, first of all, where is Junam? Do you have um, uh, any kind of a platform or release, anything like that? Were you surprised by any reactions at all. And then what was your reaction when you were approached by others who said, hey, you know, we're not doing anything by, you're not competing against each other, but how much more we can do by being with each other? Where's the film currently? What was your response uh, emotionally to not having a, a positive response necessarily from the industry and your response when you were um, approached? Sure. Wow. Those are a lot of really great questions. I was surprised. Well, first of all, the film is all of those things you mentioned, but it's also beautiful and relevant to a lot of different audiences. And that's the reason that I wanted to be involved in why I want to produce it and why I still want it to be seen um, and talked about. And I love that it's like part of this conversation also. But uh, in terms of the film, I have theories about this, um, but our film is we're still waiting to get um sort of any kind of larger distribution i think one of the things about junum and one of the things that the director was very clear about is that she wanted to make a film about her experience and she wanted trauma to not be centered yes it is part of the story it's part of her grandmother's story it's part of her mother's story but she she very much wanted it to not be, and the film is not the film that I think a lot of programmers and people wanted, which is a film about Iran and about the regime. Um, it's about her experience being an Iranian-American, and it's about a diasporic experience in the United States. And it's beautiful. It's poetic. It is nuanced. It's, it's really gorgeous. And so we're still working really hard to connect it to it with audiences. And we also, um, it's a very small film, and I mean that in that it's a small team, it's a small budget, it's very scrappy. And so when, I believe it was Joe who came to us, and when they uh, reached, and, and we were also, I'd, last year I had, I was involved in an awards campaign for a film I produced called I Didn't See You There, which was on POV. We, ha we did have a budget for that. We did decide to do an awards campaign after people convinced us we... The director, Reed Davenport, and I were initially not interested in doing an awards campaign because we didn't have the money, because it was a very long shot film to be nominated or to even make the shortlist, the Oscar shortlist. But we decided to do it for visibility. We decided to do it for outreach. We decided to do it for publicity. And we had some money. And it actually... It worked for us. The film won an Independent Spirit Award. People know about it. We're about to be on platforms. And so through that experience, going back to your question about FYC, I sort of understood that the FYC is not just about sort of like winning an Oscar or even being nominated or going to the ceremony, but it is also about engagement and visibility and outreach. And so for Junum, we were thinking about how to sort of publicize the film using an awards. Like, how could we 
be nominated? How could we be part of the conversation? But we simply didn't have the sort of bandwidth or the money. So when they approached us, it just all kind of made sense. It made sense because it made sense for where we were. It made sense because we needed some support from our colleagues who, like Joe was saying, we also are friends with, we respect, we love, we love their projects. So we sort of like got this jolt of energy from them coming to us. And now I'll just have to say with the few weeks we've been working together, I found it so lovely for lack of another word and energizing to sort of be in conversation about this part of what we do that I have found to be really just exhausting, you know, and like takes a lot out of you. And so to do it together for me has felt really great. And I'm hoping that it can sort of spur some conversations about how do we do all of this and how do films that are smaller, that are not supported by large corporations, how can they also be part of this conversation and how can we do this sustainably and get our films out there? That was a very long answer to your question, but I hope that was legible. For any of you, can talk about the DIY FYC what that is in in terms of concept. You're going to get together and show clips and have a panel discussion first in New York and then L.A. And again, to kind of present your films to potential Oscar voters, influential people. But but explain what what the whole idea is here. You know, the idea was like, okay, if we can't show four films in one night, like how do we put this together, right? And so the idea of showing some clips and putting a panel together where we all get to talk about this and get to talk about what we're talking about here right now and then talk about the value and and the meaningfulness of each of these films so that hopefully people in attendance can understand like, hey, all right, I want to go see that film and they can go find it on the platform or some of the films are actually in the middle of their theatrical release right now. Joe, I think you guys are, right? Are you like in the middle of that? Yeah, correct. We're doing an independent theatrical run as well. Yeah. So, you know, I think it it was really that, like the concept was really genuinely that simple. And it's kind of like, how has nobody done this before? Like, this is kind of, it's, it seems so obvious to some degree, but you know, sometimes you just are in your own little worlds, right? Which is why when we all decided to like, Hey, like this just like makes sense. And when we all started talking about it, it just was like, we can do this, you know? And the thing is, is that every single one of these people on this team, we've all made these movies over years and years of time, right? On like small budgets and with just so much heart and passion. And so we bring all that energy. And so at this point, you're kind of like, well, I'm just going to take that energy and we're going to keep going. And what if we bring all of this energy together? What kind of conversations can we create with people? Um, And I think hopefully people will see that. Yeah. And what what has changed in the industry? Because I don't know, maybe five, six years ago, everyone was talking about the golden age of documentaries and there was an explosion of platforms. So it was quite a demand for documentary content. There still is, but seems to be a narrowing of what, for instance, the streamers are interested in in terms of content. But how has it changed from your point of view as people who make documentary films? I was told last year by a sales agent that shall go unnamed. If you have a movie (laughs) about a celebrity or a murder, you're very valuable. If you have a movie about a celebrity murdering someone, you could not be more valuable. And he said, literally everything else is a total shot in the dark. And I think that's part of the reason. I also think that each one of the streamers 
it's like a perfect storm. It's like they've tried to narrow what they want to feed their audiences. But then each one of these streamers has encountered their bubble collapsing all at the same time. And so each streamer is in some kind of different flux that all comes down to the same thing, which is pretty much they maybe oversold their market, I, I guess. Like they kind of, uh, not artificially, but they kind of claimed a greater ability to, of sustainability maybe um, than they were actually able to handle. And so each one of them over the past year from an outsider's point of view, I kind of see this as an outsider because I'm more in the director's chair in this stuff. You get moments like last year where like there was that week where 200,000 people left Netflix in one week. And then each one of the streamers had something like that over the next six months, some crisis. CNN Plus shuts down after three weeks, et cetera, et cetera. And so you have like all of these dominoes fall over and then we like walk in all of our films right into that market in Sundance. And it's just like, oh, well, then there's really nothing, nothing here for us anymore. And what do we do in the, in the like empty space? Yeah, I wanted to jump back in and just ask, and I'm going to start with you, Joe, but anybody else can jump in. But you talked about the industry side of it and that, that collapse or the, the algorithms that's saying, yeah, it, it's murder, it's celebrity, it's celebrity murder. But you also talked about reforms in terms of the FYC and the campaign and getting in front of people. National Geographic Documentary Films presents the provocative new film, The Mission, from Emmy-winning directors Amanda McBain and Jesse Moss. The Mission tells the gripping story of John Chow, the young American missionary killed attempting first contact with the indigenous peoples of North Sentinel Island, examining how Chow's youthful thirst for adventure became a fatal obsession. Hailed by Vanity Fair as one of the best documentaries of the year, a nuanced discussion of religion, pop culture, and colonialism, says IndieWire. Compelling, says The Playlist. Riveting, says Deadline. The Mission, streaming December 8th on Disney Plus and Hulu. Without pissing off the other side of the industry, now that you've already gone after the streamers, <laughs> I want to talk about the voters... What do you feel that you're coming up against and what kind of reforms would you potentially like to see in terms of access so it's not just the usual suspects, the big name directors, and I don't say that like you don't have density, but you know, it's like anything else, you know, whether it's narrative, the big names that are going to get the attention of Scorsese is doing a film, of course people are going to pay attention. What reforms would you like to see in, in the FYC space? What we've also been hearing on the festival circuit, and this is coming from me as like a first-time director. So I've been on the festival circuit before as an editor, but this is my first time kind of stepping into the director's chair and really like getting a face full of all of this stuff and really paying attention to it. And what we've been hearing is just how much campaigns cost. And they're often like, not only are they millions of dollars, but they're magnitudes higher than the budget of the film. In, in, a, in an insane way, right? And some of these films are, uh, you know, environmental films or something like that. And it's kind of like, there's this conversation within the documentary branch that is also going on about like, it's not like we all like that, right? It's not like documentarians look at that and say, that's what we got into this for. And so I can't name like exactly what the reform would be, but I think it's funny because even 
four films coming together and saying we're going to support each other in any market seems totally radical. It seems like the Academy has never dealt with this before on the feature side of things, right? It's just a system built on money expenditure and competition. And even just kind of opening the window for like, hey, we are all in support of each other's work and maybe we can try to do this and not spend, you know, we saw the budget gap. It's not like I can spend multitudes of my budget, right? I think just even opening the door to that is a good thing. I also just jump in really quick because I'm curious to hear what Diane's take on this. Um, But I think that what I would like to see is um, transparency. I think one of the things that surprised me about our awards campaign last year is how much things cost in terms of like e-blast, in terms of venue rentals, just in terms of publicity. And I would like some way for everybody to sort of know how much things cost, which would I think would cause us to sort of reflect on like, wait, how much money are we spending? Like, is this worth it? And then just lastly, for Juna, one of the things that we would like to spend more money on is sort of rather than direct engaging voters is to directly engaging people with our impact campaign, like Iranian Americans, people who have a diasporic experience. You know, we are trying to balance like spending money on that while also recognizing that awards are important and cost money. You know, it's hard, right? Because in many ways, all of these ecosystems are important to the survival of the whole industry. So it's not that you want all of this to go away. It's more like, how can it be a little more, as it's he says, transparent and sort of equitable, right? At the end of the day, the doc branch is not, like there are a lot of very intelligent people in that branch who care about the movies and care about watching the movies and actually have done a great job over the last few years. There's always one or two or three underdogs people that don't have a lot of money that either make the shortlist and or then ultimately get nominated, right? Like the doc branch, you know, I feel like they try really hard to like watch those films, right? But like some of that comes down to relationships then too, right? But at the end of the day, Keith and Joe are both right. Like it's like spending hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars or like more than the budget of your film on just trying to like somewhat remain competitive or or get some sort of attention is difficult because if you think about all this money we're spending and you're like, what, what these films could do to change the world with their impact. So it's like, how can this stuff keep the impact side of what we're trying to do move forward alongside of just being in this sort of mix, right? You know, I think this is a beginning of that, right? And, and then it becomes, how do you engage the media and all the other sort of ecosystems to understand and appreciate that because there's lots of lists that are around and these lists are dominated by films that have big corporations behind them, right? It is very difficult for a film that is independently distributed to be recognized as important because it's like, oh, you weren't bought by one of those big platforms. um, So therefore you probably aren't good, right? And you're sitting there going, well, no, because the mandates for these places are all changing. And when the mandates are no hardcore political films or only celebrities and murder, well, then that leaves what documentary is completely out of the conversation, right? And that's the lifeblood of what we're doing here is trying to reflect stories around the world about the world. I don't want to ask you uh, to to make a gut reaction to a, a concept, but part of the issue is if it is about the dollar spin, would you like to see perhaps, you know, at least with the Academy, almost like a, an NFL salary cap. It's like, hey, you know, you can spend X on campaigns, but, you know, Netflix can spend 
X, Y, and Z on eight of their films versus saying for the doc space, $100,000 is the most you can spend on your FYC campaign. And there are rules, by the way, on campaigning and when they can happen and, and things like that. And then different branches that either, you know, vote collectively or open the vote to individuals and all of that. But a level of the playing field and say, yeah, you know, you can spend, but you can't spin your way into an award necessarily. Anybody want to back my play on that? I would love that. That sounds great. Because <laughs> there's already rules in place to kind of try to level the playing field. Like an email blast has to, you know, there's no graphics. It all has to look the same. They kind of have these soft rules around trying to keep it equal. But I would love to see some type of spending cap or limit on what you can do in that arena. I'm sure that would be easier said than done because what constitutes uh, campaigning? But there's got to be something to do. And really, maybe that's just going to Keith's transparency thing. Maybe just publishing the numbers spent free the shortlist vote or something like that. Like, that's kind of interesting. Just something to say, like, look, this is what the spends are. Do with that information what you will. All right, I have a question for Matt because Matt is the expert then. Because we're getting into a place... I mean, look, FYC, it's an industrial complex. And the reason I want to go to you, Matt, Joe and Keith, you've already alienated the, the industry, so now I don't want to get Matt to alienate <laughs> the deadline. I've burned all the bridges around <laughs> you, me. You've burned fine. all the bridges. <laughs> which means you can come and... We need to get Di Diane no, Diane's fine, and then Matt is going to be joining me on the island. We're all on an island of... Uh, we're like the... Uh, what was that? The uh, Broken Toys? The Island of Damaged Toys? Come and join me. So, Matt... You work for, for, for Deadline. You've been there for a long time. Deadline's a great organization. But I'm, I'm asking a serious question here. There's a lot of money spent on campaigns. There's more and more, and there's more campaigning, and there's more stuff out there. When we start talking about reducing the amounts of money spent, somebody can correct me on this. You know, I'm going to get in so much trouble with the Academy. But, you know, we, we, they screen films now. You can watch them at home if you're in the Academy. But to get on the landing page, I believe on the Academy streaming site, it costs you dollars. And there's a difference. If you're on a landing page, we know this in the world we live in, is a difference where you can see things right away or you got to click through or what have you, and that costs money. Matt, do you think anybody on either side is going to say, well, we got to reduce spending when it's ad space, it's revenue? It's, it's yeah, pay me money because Ford's not advertising anymore. You know, these people aren't advertising, but Nat Geo is going to advertise. We know that. Because they advertise with us and good companies. And I'm not getting on people, but your perspective, Matt. Well, I don't think that it's likely to happen from outside pressure or, or any sort of attempt to, say, put a salary cap. I think there are just too many vested interests there. And they're not going to be willing, certainly companies are not going to be willing to admit what they spend or what they don't spend. That's one thing. I think it's something where if there are changes, I think they will be economic ones made by the companies that are spending the most money. I mean, they may say at some point, wow, what are we getting for this? And, you know, th these are pretty hard-nosed companies. They really look at the bottom line. Perhaps they'll continue to think, yeah, it's in our interest to do this and winning an Oscar or getting nominated is, is worth it for the prestige. But on the other hand, they may say, yeah, we need to dial this back. I would liken it actually to the political arena in the sense that, well, why why is Iowa always first in the nation and the presidential caucuses in their case? Why does New Hampshire want to be the first, have to be the first? Because all the media is going there and it is a massive sum of money. 
all the political leader, all the candidates, all of that. Those states want it for that reason. My analogy and my point there is that this works for a lot of people. It may not work for the filmmakers. It may not work for smaller independent films, for international films that don't have endless sums of money. But in terms of reform, I am not optimistic about that happening, given <laughs> that scenario. <laughs> why we're here, Matt. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. We're cool with that. We're just going to keep going forward and trying to disrupt, right? (laughs) We've alienated the the streamers. We've alienated our peers, the voters. So I want to start rounding this out and close this out, but I want to come back to you, Diane. What what about the audience? You know, if, if the audience is being told and look, you know, my mom, she loves true crime. God bless her. You know, we see more and more uh, Tyler Perry documentary. I know Tyler Perry is amazing. It's an amazing story. But, you know, true crime and, and reality, what are we saying to the audience and what can be our expectations? And I will say, you know, with all of your films and particularly King Cole, and I've said this, you know, as a black man, King Cole really opened my eyes in a way to Appalachia, to the life, to, to the demographics there, to a lot of things. You know, if an audience isn't discovering, if they're not learning, if they're not growing, and yes, there, as I've said, I've learned things in the Brooke Shields documentary that changed how I thought and changed how I, I, I thought about her and, and, and her fame and her stardom. But what is there if we're not getting these kinds of films to the audience? And what are, are your expectations for the audience, particularly coming out of a place like Sundance, where your films did so well for them to say, look, if you all are not doing what's in the public interest, used to be a license for broadcasters, still is, but nobody watched broadcast. You got to do what's in the public interest. We can't count on the companies to do it. Can we count on the audiences to say we need films like this? I hope we can. And I feel like King Cole is kind of an example this year of a film that it's this beautiful, poetic, hybrid documentary about Appalachia told through a very deeply personal lens of Elaine McMillian Sheldon, but yet is a universal story about myth and identity and like, what does it mean to imagine a new world when the world that you've grown up around is dying and changing and not coming back, right? That's happening everywhere around the globe. Why is this a United States story or an Appalachia story or a only white people's story, right? Like, it's like ridiculous, in my opinion. And we've seen the proof of that in the sort of ground campaign of putting the film in the world around the states this year, where we show up in these theaters and it gets held over in these little theaters. And and the Q&As have been incredible. And the thing is, it's like, if you build it, they will come, right? Like you put it out there and then people show up. People are hungry for these kinds of stories. They genuinely are. And the problem is the gatekeepers need to stop thinking people are just lazy and maybe only want to watch a couple things, right? We used to not have an algorithm. And then you used to have appointment television. And in that, if you missed the window to watch your favorite show, you were stuck watching one or two other shows. And guess what? Sometimes you discovered something that you were like, I wasn't intending to watch this, but OMG, this changed my life. We need a little bit of that in our lives somehow. And I don't know if the algorithm needs a preview window or whatever, but I feel like I have deep passion and belief that people are hungry for these stories. And we just have to have a little more confidence in who we are. Hmm. Diane Becker, producer of King Cole, Joel Pila, director of Bad Press, and Keith Wilson, a producer on Junam. I want to thank you all. And I'm really curious to see how this goes because it could be something, you know, I, I don't want to say this is going to change the face of entertainment, but I think it's really interesting 
to also just remind all of us that we're not in competition with each other. If we're not really elevating the art form, if we're not elevating the stories, if we're not working together, then what's going to be left? I mean, I love these kinds of stories. I consider myself lucky to be able to talk to individuals like yourselves. And my fear, as much as I love other parts of this industry, the way that news is going away to a degree, the way that books and reading are going away, either uh, by disregard from the readers or by uh, choice by politicians. If documentaries go away, and certainly documentaries that are artful, insightful, and I think with all three of these documentaries in particular, just making us look at life in very, very different ways, life that's uh, right in front of us, this goes away. You know, we're, we're, we're in trouble now. So I certainly don't think the life is going to get better when we lose lenses to see each other. So thank you all for your work. Congratulations on the films and best of luck with this DIY FYC campaign that you're all putting together. Thank you so much. It's been so much fun talking to y'all. Yeah, thank you so much. It's great. Thanks for having us, guys. I got to tell you, Matt, I, I love these three. <laughs> I love their films and I love their attitude. And I really, I would love to see more of this in the future and, and less competitive and more collaborative. That's what I always say. But we got two things. Um, Will Rose, our amazing tech, he corrected us. We said at the head of this, this was our 12th episode, but actually this is our lucky 13th episode. Matt Carey, congratulations. Right. People said we would never yeah, last and yet here we are. <laughs> but here's the other great thing about working with you, Matt, and, and seriously, because you are Mr. News, <laughs> you actually have a scoop. In, in the short space of time, ladies and gentlemen, that we were recording this episode, Matt Carey got this amazing scoop. Drop some yes. science on us. Absolutely. Well, it's wonderful news for King Cole. You know, as we were discussing in the episode, you know, that, that film and the others have really struggled to get distribution. Well, Deadline broke the news that American Documentary has acquired the film for its POV series, which airs on public television stations. Uh, King Cole, that is. It's going to be part of POV's season 37, which debuts in the summer of 2024. So it's wonderful news for those filmmakers and very deserving. Yeah, that's fantastic. And that's great. And I'm certainly not surprised that Deadline is, is breaking the news. So congrats to you all for staying on top of it. And really, you know, I mean, again, Matt, you're always out there really supporting these films, reporting on them. I mean, it's crazy. We're going to have to have a conversation as we get towards the end of the year with you. I want to sit with you and really talk about your perspective on this year, what you've seen, you've loved, maybe some reactions uh, if we do it around the short list. But I will say in all seriousness, 13 episodes, it's been so much fun. Thank you, Matt, for being part of this. I, I deeply appreciate it. Oh, well, it's been wonderful and uh, really getting a lot of enthusiastic feedback, if we can say, without uh, slapping ourselves, uh, patting ourselves on the back, that uh, I think filmmakers and people in the community have really responded well to it. And uh, I think they're going to respond well to our next episode because we've got a true legend of the documentary field joining us. This is Sheila Nevins. There's no more important person really in the history of American documentary than her. <clears throat> and at the age of 84, she's directed her first film. It's amazing. Yeah, she was great. It's an amazing conversation. And she's really somebody... I, it, the conversation goes in a lot of places, and it is a lot of fun. So please join us again for that. Matt, as always, it's a pleasure being with you. I look forward to seeing you again on our 14th episode 
of Doc Talk. That's going to be next week right here. Please join us. Thank you. Thank you.